Warning! Warning! Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Hi, this is Dee Dee Pfeiffer, and you're listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Kind of a sick school is this? Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. <laughs> I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, what are you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Say hello to my little friend. I love to celebrate come in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I've got a crap on your deck that you choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A Daniel Mane! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose with you never home. What? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! Groovy. You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food! We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Come to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to another fun-filled episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor, and I have an amazing guest with me today. Now, folks, before we begin, I do need to explain to you a technical issue that we had with this episode. My guest and I actually recorded this in January of this year, 2021, and we had a, uh, a technical issue with uh, one of the audio files, which got corrupted. However, after all this time, I have been able to fix it. It's not 100%, but it sounds much better than it originally did. So if you do hear any slight buzzing once in a while, or if my guest's voice sounds a little hollow, it's not your device, it's in the audio file. But I think it sounds great, so on with the show. Today, we are going to discuss a film called Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man from 1976, directed by the notorious Ruggiero Deodato. 
If you're just tuning in for the first time, Then Is Now is the podcast in which we not only discuss pop culture of the past and how it relates to the present, but we also want to help people introduce young people to all the cool stuff they may have missed out on. There are so many things that today's generation has either forgotten or doesn't even know about, so it's our job to spread the word about these things. European cinema, particularly that from the 60s to the 80s, has been in our drive-in theaters, our grindhouse theaters, and even on TV, but there's so much it's hard to know where to begin. Over on the East Meets the West podcast, we're tackling spaghetti westerns from Italy and even the Shaw Brothers films from Hong Kong. Over here on Then Is Now, we're going to tackle other European genres that you may not know about but are worth watching. There's Italian horror, British horror, Euro trash, and Euro crime films, just to name a few, which we will definitely cover on this show. But there's also something called Poliziotteschi, a subgenre of crime and action films that emerged in Italy in the late 60s and reached the height of their popularity in the 70s. They're also known as Polizieschi all'Italiana, Euro crime, Italo crime, spaghetti crime films, or simply Italian crime films. So sit back and listen to me and my special surprise guest as we discuss Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shop class. Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shop class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play and have fun now. Folks, I can't tell you how excited and honored I am to have today's guest joining us. I, I think the chloroform is wearing off, so now I can tell you about him. This is the first time he's been on Then Is Now. He's a blogger, podcaster, and film commentator, and has done audio commentary, often with his co-host Troy Gwynn, for not one, but two Paul Nashie Blu-ray collections, the first of which received honorable mention in the much-coveted Rondo Awards, as well as audio commentary for such Blu-rays as Tintorera, The Tiger Shark, The Beast and the Magic Sword, Blood Ceremony, The Laurelized Grasp, Inquisition, and The Killer of Dolls, as well as the standard DVD version of Paul Nashie's Panic Beats. He's written articles for magazines such as Cinema Retro and Scream, as well as writing his own blog, The Bloody Pit of Rod, which are his meandering thoughts on movies old and new. He's also the host of not one, but two wildly popular podcasts, The Bloody Pit, an existential extension of his blog described as eclectic film discussion and babble, and hands down the greatest podcast on the subject of Paul Nashi and Spanish horror with his co-host Troy Gwynn, The Nashi Cast. Please welcome to the show one of the best podcasters out there and virtuoso of all things, Paul Nashi, Mr. Rod Barnett. Wow, I, I, when you lay it all out like that, it sounds like I might have done something. <laughs> thank you thank, thank you the uh my uh like, like a, a sad grinch my my ego just grew three sizes oh there you go <laughs> so today we are introducing you the listener to Poliziotteschi, aka italian crime films rod um on this show one thing i should mention is that we we like to introduce people to cool stuff from the past that they may have missed out on and Poliziotteschi is one of those things can you elaborate a little on what exactly that is Certainly, man. The, first of all, they're basically 
police procedural or police crime in action films made in Italy. Uh, generally, I mean, it gets a little, uh, sometimes people will say it kind of started in the 60s and then went through the 70s and then the 80s, but I always associate it with, associated primarily with the 1970s. Um, the, they're, they're always involved cops, uh, sometimes vigilantes, and uh, one, one of the hallmarks of a good one is that you're always aware that the villains are some of the scummiest scumbags that have ever scummed across the screen. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, it's it's true. I mean, uh, these things are uh, their crime movies or cop movies, kind of amped up just as far as they could take them in the 1970s, and uh, a lot of that kind of grew out of uh, the the political turmoil that was going on in Italy in the 70s. It was a really really brutal time. There was a lot of terrorism in the country, and uh, the general population felt really under threat almost all the time to the point where there was a, a certain level of paranoia and a, a willingness and a desire to see uh, kind of the police take the take extreme measures. Now, of course, right, a lot of this right. grew out of, uh, as far as the film genre the, or subgenre that we're talking about here, kind of grew out of watching what was going on in a lot of Hollywood films, as you would expect from any exploitation genre uh, right. that centers in Italy. Um, so you had them looking at films like uh, Dirty Harry or Bullet, uh, and then eventually, of course, in 1974, you're talking about Death Wish, where you're watching um, the law being taken uh, not just into vigilante hands, but you're having the cops acting almost as uh, a kind of execution squad at times. Right. And that is uh, that plays very heavily into this, this subgenre. It's one of the things that makes it uh, really, really interesting to talk about, because they are primarily exciting procedural slash action movies. Sometimes they teeter over into being just action movies. Um, and, and this one, the one we're going to be talking about in detail today, I would say really kind of does teeter into being really, really, really an action movie more than it is anything else because there's no, you know, you're, <laughs> the cops may be looking for, you know, the big bad guy, but that is not the real focus of the movie as it jets forward and <laughs> Uh, right. on, the, on the back of a motorcycle as you barely hang on. Um, <laughs> the, the the joy of these things is uh, what you're watching most of the time is a cop who's barely a step or two away from being a criminal, a criminal himself. And right. that adds a lot of, uh, well, it adds a lot of area for fun to discuss these movies because it does become a question of something that these movies were often accused of, which is kind of being... Uh, uh, fascist in nature, the same way Dirty Harry kind of was accused of that as well. And it's very easy to see that in these movies because we are talking about, you know, the, the power of the state in the form of sometimes uh, uh, not just regular police, but most of the time actually plainclothes pol pol policemen who are wielding, <laughs> wielding deadly force willy-nilly uh, at times yeah. in ways... <laughs> That, uh, as I'm sure we'll talk about later on, um, in ways that really kind of seem to put the pu public in as much danger as the criminals do. Uh, right. The, it gets a little <laughs> crazy. Now, these movies were known for uh, a fair amount of uh, graphic violence. Uh, the, mm -hmm. One of the ways that they were allowed to get away with this, of course, was that, you know, they... 
you could pretend, and I'm sure some of the people making these were not pretending, but you could pretend that these are morality tales. You could pretend that you're showing how bad things can be and that, you know, that makes the, the depiction of some of these things on screen perfectly okay because we're saying, my God, isn't this horrible? Uh, but yeah. <laughs> generally, of course, it's really it's really there. You can you can you can say that. But at the end of the day, these are exploitation films. These are movies being made to get butts on seats and to you know to uh, make a profit. And what you do is uh, you amp up the exploitable stuff, and you make people excited to see whatever it is you're presenting. And these, uh, if you if you like uh, action filled cop movies, and you've never gone back into the '70s and checked the checked any of these kind of I, I suggest that you're going to have fun uh, as long as you're willing to, you know, not be too worried about the fact that that cop, you know, mowing down people probably shouldn't be pulling the trigger quite so often as he is. <laughs> right. Well, that's great. So today's film is Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man from 1976. And um, it was directed, of course, by the infamous, nay, notorious Ruggiero Deodato. And it's been considered a cautionary tale of power. You're surrounded now. Give yourselves up. There's no way to escape. Come on out. Be sensible. Why make your situation worse? Surrender. Give me a car and I'll blow this scene and fast. Think of the lives we're endangering. I see that. You would like to avoid it. You hate to see this happening. If you risk any lives, they're your own. I admire your bravery, but I can't intervene. I'm growing less and less satisfied with you two. As often as your missions are successful, the net results include two or three cadavers butchered beyond recognition. There's a plan to rob a jewelry shop in Piazza Bologna tomorrow. A pair of well-known professionals. In one hour, I back Pasquini. We'll come help you. We're off duty. Roberto Pasquini, alias Beebe, Rick Coney. In one hour, is splitting your skull. Whether you push it or stuff yourself with heroin, I don't give a damn. If I see you picking up stakes in one of my gambling joints, I'll pay you. But you go tell the police and you don't get no more. talk about a special squad? I know quite a bit about that. For example, I know that Rick Conter you had filled for the Vlad was on the special squad. From now on, I'm restricting you. You're assigned exclusively to Pasquini. Where's Bibi? He's screwing your mother. <laughs> Lena, you're wrong. He's not screwing my mother. When I walked this morning, my thoughts were just for you. as a pair. I know they were the same pair who hit the car park. You gotta spot them. Hey, 
tested for the special squad, every test revealed that your traits are criminal. But that's what you need to fight crime. Yeah. What I can't explain is why you two, with your characteristics, applied for the police at all. Alfredo and Antonio, the members of an elite special squad in Rome, whose existence is only known to a few, do not arrest offenders. They kill them. The two ruthless cops devote themselves to hunting Roberto Pasquini, a.k.a. Bibi, a ferocious criminal and owner of gambling dens who, for five years, has slipped through their fingers with the help of a corrupt inspector. Finally, after killing four of his henchmen, Alfredo and Antonio discover Bibi's secret hideout. However, they are caught by the villain and would have ended up dead if it weren't for the timely intervention of their boss. So, Rod, uh, when did you first see this, and what was your first impression? Well, uh, the first time I saw it was... Uh, watch me date myself on videotape, a bootleg videotape back in the nineties. And wow. Yeah. Uh, that's, and, and that's the last time I saw it until about two weeks ago when I sat down and watched it on, on DVD. Not that I didn't want to revisit the movie. It's just that, uh, over the course of time, VHS tape has a tendency to go away. Uh, right. Degrade. <laughs> well, and, and not and not just that. There came a point when uh, I transferred as much videotape as possible to DVD-R and then got rid of them. And now, of course, I have huge amounts of DVD-Rs that rarely get revisited. Uh, right. So, uh, in a, in a strange way, even though certain sequences had kind of stuck in my memory, we'll we'll talk about those as we go. Uh, the uh, in a lot of ways, it was almost like watching it for the first time. Yeah, like I mentioned to you when we were first talking about discussing this film uh, about like two or three months ago, I got an email from Kino promoting the film, and I had never heard of it. And I swear to God, when I read the description, my debit card just leaped out of my wallet and made the purchase <laughs> before I even knew what was going on. Yeah, I know what you mean. I was promised ultraviolence, and I wasn't disappointed. It was just the combination of Ruggiero Deodato and the Italian crime film, I had to have it, so... Um, I did watch it then when I first got it, and then that's when I, I called you up, and I was like, hey, let's talk about this movie. So I'm, I'm excited to talk about this today. Well, with, uh, with Diodato as the director, just out of curiosity, I mean, how many of his movies have you seen? Honestly, I've only seen, let's see, well, not, I've seen a few. I've seen House Under the Edge of the Park, of course, Cannibal Holocaust, yeah. and um, I believe The Barbarians. I'm sure I saw that one. So I, I haven't seen some of his other films, which I need to get into. Well, the uh, I have to admit, this is not something that I, I, I'd done until just a few days ago, but I took a, long, I, I took a list at his, uh, his uh, list of credits and realized that I have seen most of his feature films. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> which uh, I, did, I honestly didn't think that I would be able to say that. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I have seen Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, Jungle Holocaust, Cannibal Holocaust, House on the Edge of the Park, Atlantis Interceptors. There's it, there's a better title yep. for that movie, of course. Right. Uh, Cut and Run, Body Count, uh, The Barbarians, Phantom of Death, uh, Dial Help. Uh, 
And then after that, he started working primarily in uh, television. And so I, I haven't seen much of that stuff at all. But I realized that that is a long, long list of movies, and I've seen most of them. And one other, his 1975 film, Waves of Lust, is a DVD sitting on my shelf waiting for me to put it into a player any time now. <laughs> well, uh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I was not, I, I honestly thought that there was, there were probably three or four more cop, you know, of cop movies that he had made in the 70s that I had not seen yet. And it's strange to learn that really this one is it. Yeah. And he was a big fan of, of um, TV cop shows. So that's why in this movie, it kind of looks like a, a rated R version of Starsky and Hutch, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah, very much a very hard R. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one thing I found out too about him that was interesting was he was the sole director on for two weeks of exterior shooting in Madrid for Corbucci's Django in 65, which I did not know that. Yeah. He was the assistant. He was listed as, I think he's listed as the assistant director or yeah. second sister or something like that. But yeah, he worked, he worked on Django pretty extensively. Uh, there are some, uh, you can see, you know, there's, there's some behind the scenes stills. You see him with, uh, Corpucci and with Franco Nero. And, uh, he talked, he's talked about in different interviews, how, you know, to a large degree, Corbucci was one of his, one of his mentors and one of the people he learned from. And part of that learning process, uh, which was pretty common in the Italian film industry was just being thrown in at the deep end to see if he could swim, and uh, yeah. <laughs> apparently some of that uh, some of that is uh, is true on Django as well, where he was just you know tasked with certain things and luckily was able to do them. So that's awesome. There's one movie he did in ninth in what was it? I think ninety three that looks interesting, and I I want to try and seek that out. It's called The Washing Machine. Yeah, I have not, I have not seen that myself. That looks interesting. I like like you said. Yeah, I've got to go back through and and watch more of his films because I really enjoyed this one. It just his his skill with the camera, and not only with the camera, but just in being able to infuse these different themes into the movie, uh, just really struck home with me. Well, that's the thing is if if for a, for a lot of people, especially people who are interested in um, genre or exploitation films from Europe, the minute you mentioned Diodato. Most people are going to focus in on the big one, which is Cannibal Holocaust. And that's completely understandable because it is a legendary, you know, controversial film for right. many, many reasons. And uh, the thing is, though, as time goes by, that that one, you know, incredible accomplishment, no matter what you feel about it, does tend to overshadow everything else, everything else that he did. Uh, and, and of course, he kind of. He, he he can be called at fault for that a little himself, considering that yeah. <laughs> the uh, the movie. Uh, I mean, he, he you know when you've got a movie that notorious on your resume, using it as a calling card is you is is a good idea. I mean, you don't you don't make Cannibal Holocaust and then not get offered things like House on the Edge of the Park or Cut and Run. Right. So the uh, the notoriety of that movie. I don't know if it hurt him or helped him. I, I know it had to help him in a certain, to a certain degree to be that well-known because of the controversy around the movie, but uh, it does overshadow everything. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And, you know, he also, one of the things that I learned, too, was I didn't realize that when I saw it at the time, he was uh, he had a cameo in Hostel 2 as the Italian cannibal, which I thought was a great homage to the whole cannibal holocaust thing. But true, true, very true. <laughs> So we've got the the writer is Fernando DeLeo, 
and he wrote uh, some of his top movies that he's written are uh, Naked Violence, The Boss, Caliber Nine, and a film called To Be Twenty. Have you? Do you know anything about Fernando? Uh, I know that I absolutely love his crime movies. I think that he was one of the best of the script writers for these things. The way I kind of uh, bend a knee and, and kind of bow in the direction of people like uh, Dardando Shoshetti, uh, whose name I think I just hideously butchered, the man who's responsible <laughs> for about 20 of my favorite uh, horror and gothic uh, films from uh, Italy in the 60s and 70s. Dar- uh, the way I kind of bow to him as far as the crime movies are concerned if you're talking about the if you're talking about Fernando De Leo you're talking about someone who just seems to not be able to make a misstep uh it's it's as if he's that chef in in the in the kitchen who you can just call back any you know for any recipe and he'll deliver a a, just a, a sumptuous feast you know 30 minutes later it's astonishing absolutely and um so for our cast we've got uh Ray Lovelock as Tony, he's the blonde guy. He sang both songs. I think he wrote Maggie, yeah. which was the opening song, and then he sang the other one, which uh, escapes me at the moment. But um, I just liked how it had that sort of... Uh, it was just sort of a folksy kind of song and added an interesting dimension to the film. Well, it's a great juxtaposition because what you're dealing with is a very action-filled and violent movie about some you know, pretty... You know, if, if if you stare at them straight in the face, they're pretty downbeat and depressing. But that having those songs under it, it elevates it and changes the tone just enough to keep it from being something that you just kind of want to constantly turn away from. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He was actually in Fiddler on the Roof, which I thought was interesting. Yes, yes. Well, the thing about Ray Lovelock is he's he's one of those guys who uh, <laughs> there are some there are some actors in uh, some Italian actors from this period uh, that. You look at them and you just, as a guy, you kind of want to hate them because they're fucking beautiful. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're gorgeous, good-looking men. They're handsome. They're virile. Everything about them is some, I mean, th- these are the people that you want to be when you see them on screen. And right. what you hope against hope is that maybe they suck as actors. Then you can feel a little bit of superiority over them, right? right. But no, he's actually good. And that just makes it worse because he's so good. I can't take my eyes off of him when he's on screen. He's really talented. He's been in some movies. He's been in several movies that I think are simply phenomenal. Uh, Queens of Evil is absolutely fantastic. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie, which oh, is, yeah. is just, uh, it's a work of genius, and he is central to it. Uh, he has a great role in the fantastic crime film Violent City. Uh, oh, my goodness. He's just, like I say, I take a look at him, and I think to myself, I need him to not be good. He's too handsome, and <laughs> he's actually good. And he looks like um, he looks like Robert Redford. I thought to, to a degree, yeah. He's he's. I, I can see some people uh, definitely looking at the two of them and thinking, hey, Ray Lovelock might be more handsome. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! And then we've got um, we got Mark Perel who played um. Uh, for, what was his name? Oh, Fred. That's right. He was Fred. And um, I remembered him actually from The Psychic. I forgot yes. that, that he was in that. That was really good. Well, he's his career, I've, I've run into him in a number of different films as well. And what's weird for me is there's something about his face where I don't remember him until I see his name. I don't remember having seen him in something else. And then I look at his list of credits and I realize, oh, I've seen him in just so many things. 
Williams. He's in. Yeah. He, uh, you know, famously, he he's in a couple of movies that I hold up as just astonishing classics. Uh, the Road to Selena from 1970, which is a which is an amazingly good film. He's got a, he's got a role in. And then there's Don't Torture a Duckling from Lucio Fulci, which is uh, one of Fulci's best films in my opinion, and he has a, a central role in that, which is and he's he's quite good in it. And then, of course, later for Fulci also, as you mentioned, The Psychic. But like I say, and oh, I have to mention, <laughs> I have to mention a sleazy little piece of, of Italian uh, Italian exploitation known as The Sister of Ursula. He has a role in. Okay. And uh, if you've not seen The Sister of Ursula, uh, it's not a film that I would recommend to everybody. But uh, <laughs> if you're willing to deal with sleaze and kink, uh, go check out Sister of Ursula from 1978, and uh, oh, okay. that's just all I'll that's just all I'll <laughs> say. But like I say, he's one of those guys who who's who's good every time I see him. It's just that his I don't know what it is about his face, but it just slips from my memory until I see his name on screen. Right, right. He died young though. He was 34, which I was surprised to find out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't remember what the circumstances uh, were around that, uh, but it's clearly. It's clear he died way too young. Yeah, it's just too bad. And then the one that I took me a second. I was watching it the first time around, about three quarters of the way through. Like um, the boss, Adolfo Celli. I'm like, I know him. I know him from something. And then yeah. finally dawned on me he was Lago in Thunderball. Oh well, yeah. You, the it, I, that's one of my favorite things about this, and it's just uh, a joy when this happens. Is when you'll find uh, somebody who is is primarily known to American audiences for playing a villain in a Hollywood movie and in Italian movies in Europe, in Euro cult cinema, they are playing, you know, sometimes good guys. Sometimes they're playing cops. Sometimes they're playing mayors or just, you know, whatever. And, and so you have that, you have th that particular actor who is uh, our, our cops boss and is, you know, he's a good guy. He really is. He really is a good guy. It reminds me of when I run across uh, Gert Frobe, uh, the guy, the actor who played uh, the German actor who played uh, Goldfinger, yep. <laughs> he'll, he'll he'll turn he'll turn up in uh, half a dozen films here and there, and it's just like, oh, he's just a, a working actor doing all kinds of things. He's not actually Goldfinger. That's right. Right. <laughs> we come from the retro future. We want you to be nostalgic for what's to come. A new channel and distribution network for smart people with bad taste, featuring content from Church of the Subgenius. Creature Features, Cinema, Insomnia, Sleazy P. Martini and Guar, Troma, Corey Maccabee, Horror, Sci-Fi, Saturday Morning Cartoons, Midnight Movies, and Assorted Trash We Love. Add our channel OSI 74 to your Roku player or visit OSI74.com. All systems go. And then we got Franco Chiti, who was uh, Rudy, who kind of dies early on in the film, uh, yeah. but he, one of the things that I noticed that he was in was The Godfather. Yeah. Which, I'm going to have to go back and watch that again, because I didn't remember him from that. Well, that sounds like some horrible some horrible work to have to do, to go back and watch The Godfather. I know, another excuse to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So then we go through the cast here. One thing I thought was interesting was that the, the character of Norma, who was the uh, secretary, yeah. that was Sylvia Dionisio, and she was Deodato's wife in real life. Right, right, and Quite a lovely lady, and I think she really has some great chemistry with uh, with Lovelock and uh, Pharrell. I think they do a good. I think those scenes with them are really funny and cool. Right, right, absolutely. And it's funny too because she just she pushes back like they're they're like 
you know, all over her, and she just gives it right back to them. <laughs> oh, I know. I mean, the whole the whole question, and they're very upfront about it, is like, which one of us will you have sex with first? And right. uh, her 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 extremely brilliant way of putting them in their place, but without really actually closing the door to having some kind of sexual you know liaison with either you know one of them or both of them uh, is is just really well played. And I was I I was really uh, let's put it this way. I was not expecting that because yeah. uh, there's a there's a long, thin, well, okay, no, there's a long, thick line of misogyny that tends to run through these films because the, yeah. it's, it's, just a, it's just a part of the way a lot of these uh, quote-unquote badass characters are written for these kinds of stories. And the fact that, you know, they have absolutely no intention of forcing this woman to do anything, they're just trying to talk her into going to bed with them. Right. <laughs> Even even as a threesome, they didn't care. Yeah, yeah, they'd be perfectly happy with that because she is very attractive. Absolutely. Uh, then we've got Renato Salvatore, who played Roberto Pesquini, also known as BB. And one thing I found interesting about him was that he was a former teen idol in the fifties, and he was considered one of the most underrated actors in Italian cinema. Well, now that I did not know, that's good. To, well, I'm not shocked by it because he's quite good at this. Right. Right. So, um, was there anybody else in the cast that stood out to you? Uh, honestly, as you go along, there are a couple of uh, character actors that I they have those faces that if you watch enough uh, if you watch enough Italian exploitation cinema from the sixties and seventies, you go, man, I know I've seen, I know yeah. I've seen that person. <laughs> oh man, I know I've seen that person somewhere before. Uh, yep. <laughs> and I can't place them, and then you know they're not in the movie long enough for you to hold on to the desire to figure it out, and it just slide on by. So. Right. <laughs> so we can dive into the film a little bit here now. Obviously, um, I'd like to um, to mention that one of the alternate titles for the UK home video was The Terminators, which <laughs> I, I guess that works. It was this was pre you know Arnold Terminator, so. Oh well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, I know that that's all that anybody can think of now because of the massive success of that particular film. But I absolutely love the various uh, retitlings. There, there's some, sometimes movies uh, they get odd titles that uh, <laughs> honestly, it's just sometimes it feels like pure absolute chance as to what we're going to end up thinking of a film. Uh, you know, thinking what what title we're going to associate it with, and. Uh, Generally, of course, it's going to be whatever title you first see the movie under. But uh, more and more these days, especially over the past 10 to 20 years with the advent of digital video, the uh, film will be marketed under its most well-known title, and then the print on screen will be of a, of a, of a different title. Right. And uh, so I, I, there are some movies that I don't have that kind of association with, but uh, it seems to me that a lot of the titling, retitlings of this are just kind of variations on Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, which, honestly, I can't think of a better title for a film like this. Absolutely. I think even Tarantino had said that this was one of the greatest titles of a film ever. <laughs> oh, it, it, I, I would have to agree. And it's it's actually a, an excellent example of the genre in a lot of ways. If I understand it correctly, the script itself, when um, Fernando first wrote it, it was Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Cop. So I'm I'm glad they changed it to Die Like a Man because that just has a little bit more oomph to it, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It would it wouldn't have the same. Uh... <laughs> but I, although I could imagine just shortening it, and deciding to call it Die Like a Cop. Right. <laughs> that would be. That would be interesting. Yeah. But then the main characters would have to die. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, 
from what I was from what I was led to understand, one of the original ideas for the title was "Born a Cop, Die a Cop." So, right, that would be. I can see that, but at the same time, once again, you know, live like a cop, die like a man. Ah, you know, that's that's that that that's to me that has the sound of someone cracking open a can of 1970s bad domestic beer. Clink. You know? Right. <laughs> Oh, man, that's too funny. You know, one of the other titles, it was released on, on the U.S. and Italian DVD was Raro, R-A-R-O. Yeah. And uh, I didn't quite understand what that was, but apparently the Italian DVD version has no end credits. So. <laughs> <laughs> that, had, well, uh, that was true. That was true of some films sometimes. Uh, I, I don't know why, and I also don't know why that that would, uh, although I have heard certain tales about uh, the cheapness of certain distributors, where they would, uh, well, let's put it this way. Depending on the length of your film, uh, the, the actual running time, uh, there would be more film that would need to be in a canister. And if it were over a certain, a certain running time, you would need a whole other canister to have you know, all the reels of a film delivered to a theater. So if there was some way to shorten the film down so that you could get away with not having to send, say, as many canisters to each theater to show your movie... Yeah, might do it. Right, right. That makes sense. So uh, one of the things, too, these guys are in what's called the special squad. And in my research, I found that it's considered a subgenre of Poliziotaski. Yeah. Have you heard that? Is Are there like a lot of movies similar to this where there there are just special squads where they're licensed to kill? Well, there's uh, there's one that I could think of just uh, that, that goes right along with the idea of what these guys are set up to be, which is 38 Special Squad. Okay. Which is, by the way, a really good one because, uh, well, I, I, I won't give it away, but let's just say it's 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 a pretty action-filled movie, and it does focus on another you know special unit inside the police that are kind of given certain loose parameters of what they're allowed to do, and uh, their the reason for the title is they they actually pack uh, these these particular thirty eights that are uh, essentially considered. Uh, not they're, they're not generally permissible for the police to carry, and so okay. uh, there's a stunt. There's a particular stunt, car stunt in that movie that I will never forget watching for the first time and then backing the film up four times <laughs> and calling my girlfriend into the room and going, "You've just got to see this. You're just not going to believe this." <laughs> uh, but uh, so it is. Uh, I don't know how many of them there are. I don't know how much. If you want to call it a subcategory of these type type of films, I guess that's possible. But uh, that's the only one that comes to mind that I'm aware of where you're you're talking about people who aren't just thought of as detectives or, you know, working for, you know, working in homicide or working in whatever division. So, yeah. Right, right. And when the film was first released, I guess they, um, the censorship commission didn't like the part where um, Pasquini gouges the guy's eye out yeah. and then squishes it under his heel. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's uh, that, that's I don't think you're going to find that footage. <laughs> and he, uh, yeah, they, they did away with that. Uh, and of course, it's the scene as it plays in the movie is still pretty rough. Oh but, yeah. Uh, when you when you uh, when you listen to an interview with Diodato talking about his his kind of joy in pushing the the boundaries as hard as he was with that scene and not being all that shocked at it getting cut out, <laughs> <laughs> it, it reminds me a lot of. Uh, and uh, you know, stay with me. There's a a famous story about uh, Martin Scorsese's film Casino. Where there's a sequence in the movie, if you've ever seen it, where uh, Joe Pesci's mm -hmm. character has got some guy he's tr he's squeezing for information, 
and he's got his head in a vice and is squeezing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, they filmed it with this guy's, I mean, because they just describe it. They just have Pesci describe what happens as he like sneeringly walks away from the situation. But they actually filmed the special effect with this guy's eye actually being popped out of his head by the vice. Oh, wow. Uh, but of course, Scorsese knew that this was how he was going to get, he was going to use this over the top sequence to get away with keeping other scenes of violence in the movie in there when he submitted it to the MPAA. That's and, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, like I say, it's, it's with, with a lot of directors, they get, they, they can get surprised by, you know, the censors taking offense <laughs> to what they put on screen. <laughs> And then there are times when if you're smart enough, you're realizing, yeah, I'm probably going to have to take this out, but it'll allow me to get away. I could use it as I could use it as a chit to get away with something else. Right. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that was Deodato's plan that for just that reason, you know, hard to know. But considering how much violence is in the movie, if, <laughs> if he thought that far ahead, he was being smart. Yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, I, what I love is how the movie just it just opens up. With you know, you first you get a little bit of credits and the, and the peaceful music, and then it just jumps right into the action scene of the the motorcycle chase. Yep. And I just love that because I remember when I first watched it, I was like, "All right, now I know what I'm in for. This is going to be great." <laughs> well, I have a question for you though. Sure. Like I said, going back and rewatching this after so long a period of time, this was kind of like watching it for the first time. My question to you is: there was a there there was a moment. In the under the as the right after the credits are finished and we're watching these two you know who, the the guys who end up being our two main characters yeah. uh, who who are riding on a motorcycle to a specific place and then are sitting and you know sitting across the street watching something that's about to happen. There was a moment when I wasn't sure if they were going to be the cops or the bad guys. Oh yeah, and it really there really was, and I I wasn't sure how this movie was going to play out, and I I think that that I mean not not to give too much credit to Diodato, let's put this in the in the lap of uh, the scriptwriter at the same time, because I think that's intentional, because the movie does go way out of its way to make you understand that there's not much dividing the way they do what they're doing as cops from what these criminals are doing. Yeah, it wasn't until um, when I first watched it, when Fred um, snapped the guy's neck at the end of the motorcycle chase, yeah. that I started to question it. I was like, wait a minute. I thought these guys were supposed to be the cops because the, like, you know, their pictures were on the front of the thing. So I kind of knew that they were going to be the cops. Yep. But I, I was just shocked. I was like, oh, crap. What the hell's going on here? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and that whole sequence, it was directed by a guy named Gilberto Gallimberti. He was what was called the master of arms. That's his list in the credits, which is basically the guy who coordinates the weapons or, or whatever. And he, he did, like, guerrilla directed that whole sequence. I don't think they even got permits to do that. Oh. Yeah, they they're they're very clear about the fact that uh, you know they they all said similar things because this was uh, not a, not not a few years ago where they were talking to a lot of the people involved in making the movie and they flat out said yeah we'd never be able to shoot those sequences where we're riding the motorcycles up and down those those staircases uh, I said of course at the time we just went out and did it without getting any permits or anything like that and, yeah. and, then, and then got away as quickly as we could before the, before the real police can show up and, and tell us to stop. So. Right, right. One thing I really love, too, about the, these movies particularly, especially the ones like this that are just filmed, they're, they're so visually beautiful. They're like time capsules where, you know, you could yeah. see Rome, how it looked in the 70s, and you feel like you're there. And I, I love that. And it's have you ever been to Rome? Oh, Lord, no. I wish I had. Uh, the only, okay. uh, the only uh, time I've ever been able to spend 
in uh, Europe at all was I was able to spend a couple of weeks when I was uh, when I was uh, 18. I was able to spend a couple of weeks with uh, a crew of other students in uh, Paris and northern uh, northern France. Uh, oh, okay. Basically, uh, being very happy about the drinking age and going to different <laughs> different. <laughs> uh, <laughs> different places That's awesome. uh you know going you know, which was great i mean going to going to paris at the time i had i i had uh, just enough knowledge of the french language to be able to not be thought of as a scumbag american who couldn't speak any french at all <laughs> and uh, you know going up uh, going up in the eiffel tower at night which was a truly gorgeous that I mean, was just a gorgeous view just astonishing to see the you know the city of lights laid out underneath you but that's that's the only time i've ever been able to get to europe i i have uh I'm happy to say I have open invitations from a number of people in a couple of different countries, but uh, yeah, uh, haven't been able to haven't been able to get back over there since. Well, interesting. That, that's awesome. But you got to get over there. But uh, Rome, especially, and it's funny because the reason I asked you that is I went about seven years ago with my when I was married. I went with my wife and kids, and we went and visited family over there that I have. And it Rome today is vastly different in some ways than is depicted in this film. And the the thing that I noticed the most that was the difference is in this film, you've got a lot of different sized cars and trucks everywhere. You've got Mercedes yeah. and, you know, all different types of vehicles. Nowadays, they're all small cars. I was there for two weeks and I only saw one SUV. And they drive so crazy. It's I, I was literally in a building looking out the window at all these cars and and it's cars and mopeds everywhere because the streets are so narrow and it it was almost like this beautiful ballet because I, I, I was amazed at how these cars and 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 um, uh, mopeds they're zipping around so fast that I was so shocked that nobody got killed or maimed or anything <laughs> <laughs> well i mean uh that that does not surprise me although uh i mean a lot a lot of that I would see a lot of that as, as good uh, as far as, you know, keeping the car, the, the car sizes small simply because, you know, the, there's no way to make those avenues and streets any wider. So, right. uh, you know, they're going to be the size they are no matter what you do. Uh, and, yeah, there are times, uh, for instance, uh, there's a scene early on in the film where uh, one cop who's essentially a plainclothes cop who is part, seems to be kind of undercover slightly, uh, steps outside, is about to get into his car, and then is gunned down. And he falls next to the car he was about to get into. And I have—I hate to say this, but I look at the, the size of the car, and I think, could that guy have folded himself into that car? <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> yeah, like, to God, he's, he's, because he's a, he's about a six foot tall guy, and I'm looking at that right. car thinking he's, he's, I mean, that's like a freaking go-kart, but that's yeah. what some of them are. And I, there's a part of me that wonders, there's a couple of reasons you might have your main characters when you're in an action movie like this running around on motorcycles. First reason, motorcycles are cooler than cars when you're talking about action sequences. So, right. okay, right. But the second would be, uh, does it really kind of emasculate these guys to be folding themselves into these square little tiny boxes? Right. <laughs> I don't know if that's a visual component of why they were making those choices, but in this film it's definitely motorcycles only for our heroes. How how cool can you look in a Volvo chasing after the bad guys? You know, <laughs> precisely. How many Kia <laughs> badasses do you know? That's right. <laughs> but these guys, it's and it was just a great way of um, 
the whole sequence was a great way of illustrating how these characters are because they're riding over other cars. Um, I think it was Fr uh, oh, Fred yeah. was crashing through the cafe. Yeah. <laughs> they almost killed people on their own. Well, that's just it. Like I say, once that that whole once you see the purse snatchers and that, and that they're chasing the purse snatchers, your your brain immediately snaps into okay, well they're the cops. They're gonna they're going after these scumbags, but. You're immediately confronted by the fact that these guys are reckless lunatics. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the hell are they doing? I mean, I understand you wanted to get these guys because they, they seem to have just killed that poor lady. But, right. Oh, that was horrible, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she was chained to her purse, which okay. was I thought was interesting. Well, there's a. I thought that was incredibly odd, but I did a little reading, and it, and it does seem that, you know, during this period of time, there was so much crime going on in the cities in Italy, uh, especially in Rome, that uh, people were taking weird measures. Uh, and some of it some of it would be, I mean, turns out that that's probably not a really great idea, but, you know, it's, uh, you know, a bizarre early version of lunatics with wallet chains. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> things like that where they, they think this is going to stop somebody from taking it from them. And it's like, you know, in this case, this lady dies because of it. Right. They smashed her head, they're dragging her into the lamppost. <laughs> it's not funny, but it was just like, you know, thinking about it like, oh, my God. Oh, I know. And it's one of the, I mean, honestly, when they when, you, when they start dragging her, you keep, there's this part of your mind that immediately thinks, oh, okay, well, you know, the, the, the bags, whatever's holding her arm onto it is going to snap. And then it right. doesn't. <laughs> and she's <laughs> dead. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting, too, because, the, you know, the villains, we're still setting it up here at, at this beginning part of the movie. We don't really know how violent the cops are. But the villains are so bad because they do that to the lady. And then the poor blind guy is, you know, crossing the street with his dog, and they run the dog over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and the, which is, you know, <laughs> the, the, the quickest way, and I hate to say this about our species, but it's true. The quickest way yeah. to get uh, human beings pissed off at you is to injure an animal. <laughs> right. We are, you know, you can do all kinds of crazy ass things to people, and there's just something in our brains that make us think, well, they might have done something to deserve that. <laughs> but you injure, yeah. you injure an animal, and everybody stands up and is ready to start hitting you with a stick. Right. <laughs> and I think therein lies the difference, ultimately, when you look back at the film between the good guys and the bad guys. You know, the good guys, yeah, they resort to violence, they'll kill the bad guys, but they're not vile. Like the villains are, are just despicable in yeah. this movie. And and sometimes that in these films, especially, sometimes it can get to the point where the the villains are so so bad, so freaking over the top, awful that it becomes slightly unbelievable. It becomes the kind of thing where your 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 suspension of disbelief kind of gets away from you at times. Uh, I will point to a particular movie called Almost Human that uh, falls into this category, at least for me, where I think it's an excellent movie, but it is absolutely, there, there comes a point where you start to think, I don't know if any human being could be as vile as the bad guy in this movie. <laughs> I mean, he, it's play, he's played by Henry Silva. And Henry oh, Silva, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And Henry Silva can play, without a doubt, the, the truly despicable characters he whether he's right. playing he seems to be despicable whether he's playing a good guy or a bad guy to be honest with you <laughs> that's true <laughs> and in almost human it's that point where he's it's not that the film becomes a, a parody or comedic or 
in any way, but the character Silva plays in the movie is so vile. It's uh, it's it's kind of hard to deal with. That was almost human. There's, there's. Um, I saw that he was in a bunch of these uh, Scatty movies. Yes, yes, he was. Yes, he was. And that, and he's always a, he's always someone you can count on to kind of anchor the film. Uh, he's 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 somebody who, uh, he just there, there's something about there's some actors who they may not be like the greatest actors in the world, and I'm not trying to to denigrate Henry Silva. I'm just saying there some some actors have something that the camera loves, and he's one of those guys. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and th- these guys, Fred and Tony, man, they just, they enjoy shooting and killing and destroying. <laughs> they're always smiling when they're doing it. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, I'm reminded of a, of a line from a uh, police comedy called Running Scared from the late 80s. Oh, yeah. Where uh, one one cop asked the other, he says, hey, come on, man. What are the job they let you shoot people? <laughs> That's so true. Oh my god! And these and it's funny too because I kind of knew something was up with the boss when he's talking to them and he's kind of I don't know lackadaisically reprimanding them about their their tactics. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. You know, I always have to friggin' turn things around on the paperwork and stuff. Yep. And it was just like he it was like with a wink and a nod. You know, he really wasn't reprimanding them. He was enjoying what they were doing. But then he asks them, "Are you?" You know why? Why aren't you guys criminals? You'd be so good at it. <laughs> which, which, like I say, the film makes sure you you get that message repeatedly. That these guys, if you have any questions about whether or not the other people around them are aware of how close to the line they stride, then you know the movie makes sure that you're you know that you're aware that those those other characters see it for what it is. But right. it's it's um, yeah, it is that question of what. what what do you what do you say when you when it comes down to something like that? What how do you uh, how do you how do you respond in a way that doesn't make you feel as if you're being uh, suckered automatically in a way? Right. <laughs> and it's just funny too how these guys are because, like I said, you know they love shooting and destroying and killing and and they love fucking and they don't they yep. don't have any romantic aspirations anywhere. It's no, just no, no. another thing that they do. And that is one thing that uh, the movie the movie doesn't really okay. Let, let's 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 tick off a few strange bullet points about our two main characters. These two cops who are undercover cops who are, are sometimes sent out by their boss uh, with plausible deniability to do some things that are probably not something that any supervisor should ever send a cop out to do. Right. Let's, t- let's tick off a few strange things about these guys. One. They're uh, they're partners. They're cop partners. Two, they live together in the same apartment. Right. They sleep in the same house in the same room with just two different beds. And by the way, they're not big beds. They, these are these are single beds. These are these are twin beds. These are small beds. Right. That really would only be comfortable for one person. Then they have a a, a cleaning lady who who comes in and. Uh, Apparently cooks and does the cleaning for them, who's been doing this for a long time. So you kind of have this mother figure who's there for both of them, uh, even though they harass the hell out of her. And, right. <laughs> and she she totally despises them. <laughs> right, right. There's There seems to be absolutely no ability for these two guys to have a jealous bone in their body where the other guy is concerned. They're not right. worried about 
the, 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 the there, there are no petty jealousies about uh, women in between them. They're more than willing to share or trade back and forth different women. Right. Uh, it doesn't. They don't care. Yeah. The the, <laughs> the 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 strange thing about this is the the next step for me thinking about the way this the way these two guys are played out in the movie is that there's either an unspoken to you know between the two of them are an unspoken to us the audience understanding that with, between these two guys that they don't think they're going to live very long doing the job they're doing. Oh, okay. I, it just feels that way. And there's a part of me that wishes that the script had added a little something in there that right. gave us an indication that these guys thought down that road a little bit. But yeah. then, uh, but you know, because that just seems to me, I mean, I mean, come on, your, your partners, you live together, you, you know, you basically they're together 24 seven. Right. And it's, it's clear that there, there, there doesn't, there, a different a different film would kind of ex- a different film trying to make a different point would have extracted basically all the women in their lives that they just casually have sex with and right. led you to believe that perhaps these two guys have some kind of homoerotic relationship going. right but the movie really doesn't point you in that direction at all these guys just seem to be you know really close friends who have this bond and like I say, it just seems unspoken that maybe these guys really don't think that they're going to live a long life. And that may be one reason why, you know, they have the relationships with women that they do. They're not. Right. They don't make any permanent attachments. Right. Right. Why Why do that when it's not, it's not going to help anybody? It's not going to, you know, yeah. we're just going to end up dead pretty quickly regardless. And that's, that's just one thing that, I mean, it's, it's one of the only things that I wish had been kind of added to the storyline is kind of get, get a little bit more insight into these guys. Because the movie walks you down that street a little bit when you find out about the way they live together. And uh, it's just, it's it's really interesting because they don't have, they, they, it, would be, it would be easy to add that aspect to it because of the, uh, the violence that they live with just day in and day out doing their job. Right. Yeah, just a simple line of dialogue here and there where, you know, oh, I'll, I'll never live long enough for, to see that anyways, you know, something yeah. like that. You know, and it's funny, too, because I didn't I totally didn't get any homoerotic thing from it. I felt yeah. like they were brothers, that, even to, though exactly. they were blood related. I kind of I kept waiting for there to be some line between the two of them, you know, talking about how they knew each other as kids or, uh, you know, they went to school together or something like that to give you an idea of how these two guys are so in sync. Uh, not that that oh, can't, yeah. not that that can't happen, uh, you know, with people who meet as adults as well. But right, <laughs> they, they could just—it just seems like there could be, uh, there could have been just a little something in there to give us a little more insight into just I mean, because they—they're they're showing us this weird living arrangement. So why not, you know, take it a little step further and give us a little bit more insight into these two guys? Because in a way, they are kind of ciphers, and it, and at, after a certain point, you kind of have to realize they're probably being presented that way for a reason. You know, there's we, we don't want to know too much about them because they don't want other people to know too much about them. Right. That's amazing. That's a great analysis. And the, the two actors have such chemistry together, too. And the way the characters interact um, was, you know, even beyond that, they speak in code sometimes. Yeah. Like after they torch the the cars at the at the gambling den, 
they're in the house and the maid's in the house, so they're not talking about it openly. They're, one guy's, I think it was Fred, was looking at the paper, and the other one's like, oh, did you, did you see that theater opening? How was it? And they're, oh, it's hit the charts. Everybody's talking about it. You know, and he, obviously yeah. he's referring to the, the news articles about them torching the cars. <laughs> exactly. And it, it, because they, you know, they don't want to, and, and like I say, it's hard to know whether, if they're speaking in code about that because uh, they're, they're usually working you know, with people who don't know their cops in the first place, or if they just don't want to put this lady who, who works for them in a position of knowing something that could put her in a bad spot. I think it's a little bit of both. Because they, they never brag. They never say, oh, hey, you know, I did an awesome job, you know, jumping over those cars on my bike, and I love smashing through cafes. They yeah. don't ever brag about what they do. They just do it. They also don't compliment <laughs> each other on the accomplishments either. They just discuss them. That's true. Yeah. You know, another moment, too, where they spoke, what I thought was speaking in code was when, first of all, the whole scene was insane where they're in that like gully and they've got cans lined up on both sides and they're they're opposite each other shooting what seems to be at each other. But they're shooting at the cans just out of range of their the other guy's head. Yeah. And it, while they're doing that, they notice that they're being spied on by bad guys. And he's like, I think it was, I forget which one it was, Fred or Tony. One of them says, um, did you see that rabbit? And he's like, I did. You know, and yeah. so they're so in sync all the time. And like I say, there's there's so much to like about this movie. And there's there's a the, the, the kind of unspoken relationship between these two guys and how it's clear they've been doing this for years. You know, it's clear that, that you know, that, that sequence there where they're, it's, it's a kind of... Uh, uh, target practice experiment, you know, t- target practice uh, scenario for them that they do to kind of keep themselves sharp. Yeah. Uh, this is something they've clearly done a half a dozen times. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to get back to a point that you brought up earlier about how the boss kind of throws nuggets out there. And even though he doesn't want them to do it, he knows they're going to do it anyways. And one of the things that stuck out to me was when... Oh, um, oh! By the way, by the way, I wanted oh, sorry. to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I wanted to. I wanted to make make amends for something. I forgot. I forgot earlier uh, when I was talking about almost human. Allow me to apologize. It's not Henry Silva who plays the bad guy. It's actually uh, Thomas Milian. Oh, okay. And, uh, and uh, so uh, the the great thing about uh, that movie, uh, in a weird way, is that Henry Silva, who is such a despi- who can play such despicable characters, yeah. and believe me, if you want to see him play a despicable character, watch uh, the movie Cry of a Prostitute. Oh jeez! Oh, uh, <laughs> it's it's Thomas Milian, the uh, the Cuban actor, who is without a doubt one of the most despicable human beings you're ever going to see on screen. I apologize for make, I I don't know how I did that, but that's that's true. Sorry about that. That's fine. Hey, no worries. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> when the boss tells them that there was um, I don't know, I forget exactly what it was, but something was going to go down at a bar, and. But he tells them specifically, don't go there. We're going to have cops take care of it. Yes. And, and so they're like, all right, well, we're going to go to lunch then if you don't want us to go to the bar. And he's like, okay. And then the boss seems like he's kind of focused on what he's doing. And, and they go, well, we're just going to go have lunch at that bar. And he's like, yeah, okay, go wherever you want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but what's great is that the way the actor is playing that, uh, the way their, their boss is playing it, he's well aware. He, he, he's, he's, he's essentially setting himself up for plausible liability. The way uh, 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 Adolfo Ch- uh, Chelli is uh, playing that is that he could say he had no idea that they were doing this by acting right. the way he is as they leave the room, telling him that they're going to go do it. Yeah. 
Right. <laughs> because and, and the and the and the movie underlines this by having him pick up the phone to supposedly call to order cop, you know, you know, regular cops to go to this place, and he actually just orders a sandwich. Right. <laughs> and the, the the thing I love too about these two characters is that they're so perceptive. They're very good cops. Yeah. You know, when they go to that bar. Um, I think it was um, Tony steps outside and he's just observing everybody outside and he knows who's spying on them, you know, who may be an undercover cop and who's not. And you can just tell that in his face. I love that about the acting in this. Uh And and there's there's quite a bit of that, which, uh, you know, it it, it speaks to uh, not just the the talent of the, the people involved, but the willingness of the people making the movie to allow that those kinds of story elements to be communicated without dialogue. That's a good, that shows a good level of trust and ability within the, the, the structure of the people making the film. They knew that they could do this, and uh, therefore they were. You end up with a movie that is much more interesting visually, and uh, it tells its story in a way that isn't uh, essentially somebody reading a radio play with pictures. So, <laughs> that, right. <laughs> which, which is uh, always a good thing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Hey, did you notice too on on a kind of an unrelated note? Did you watch this with the subtitles on at all? Oh, I actually watched it with both the English dub and the English subtitles on because I know they were they were very different. They were very different. Yeah. Well, I wanted yeah, and I wanted to be able to compare and contrast. Overall, I prefer uh, the uh, the subtitle the uh, the Italian version mainly because I think the the dialogue is in several places a little bit smarter, but. Uh, the English dub is pretty acceptable. Oh, I thought it was very good. And I thought it was interesting, too, though. There were, there were sometimes where the subs and the dubs conflicted with each other. Like when the boss is ordering a sandwich and he's like, what do you have for tap beer? And what do you have on tap? And yeah. then he, obviously they said they didn't have anything. And I think in, in one version, I think it was in the dubs. Um, yeah, in the dub, he says, oh, then forget it. I don't want anything. And in the subtitle, it says, oh, just give me whatever you've got. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'm like, well, which is it? <laughs> it's, and, and that's just it. I, since it's an Italian film, I would default to whatever was in the Italian version. But at the right, same that's time, true. it's one of those moments where you're like, eh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> exactly. The plot didn't hinge on what, what beer he got. No, the, the point of that scene was that he was not calling cops to go there. He knew damn good well these guys were going to go. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, w- one cool scene, too, where Fred and Tony, they torch the cars outside of the illegal gambling den. And I just love that, you know, rather than going in and bust the place up, they just hit them where it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, yeah, they tor- don't even go inside the place. They just no. destroy everybody's cars. Yeah. <laughs> and the car they took wasn't even theirs. They took one from the impound. Yeah, yeah. And they <laughs> ended up accidentally burning it, too. And they're just like, oh, well, I guess we'll take the bus home. <laughs> It's like, I just love that carefree attitude that they have. Nothing phases them. They could be in, you know, in combat with the military and get through it (laughs) scot-free. Probably so, yeah. You're you're probably right, yeah. (laughs) Shark Bites, Shark Bites podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts.
you know, and it's funny, in the 70s, you had a lot of cop thrillers that showed us that in order to combat the increasing violence, more good guy violence is required. But I think this movie, it just shows us that more violence could could be bad in some instances because these guys are borderline psychotic. Yes, I completely agree. And I think that that is the point of a number of these films made in Italy at the time. I think that uh, when you get to uh, cert- certain films like uh, Revolver or Syndicate Sadists uh, or The Big Racket, uh, those are movies that are really kind of trying to, to, to tease that idea out of these scripts, tease, tease these out of these storylines, and kind of ask the question about where the society's judgment on how far we should go. You know, how, you know, how, right. how far do you go as a society? What do you, what, what do you countenance as a society in your police force and your policing of the population before you stepped over a line and you're, and you're uh, essentially, you, you should, you should just call yourself a dictatorship because uh, there, there are some of these movies where people assume uh, a certain level of criminality and then people get swept up into swept up by the police and uh, sometimes killed, who either had marginal connection to this stuff, you know, or coerced. You know, they, they were they were being coerced into the into what they were doing in the first place, so really had no choice, or were completely innocent. And it, it depends on you know it depends on the film to see which tack they're going to take on what the you know what they're laying out there. But a lot of the time. I think it's fascinating that in this genre at this time, like I say, the, the prime time for this for me, as far as I, as far as I can see, is really is the 1970s, yeah. where you're, where the idea was to try to present both sides as being uh, questionable, and uh, as, as, you know, it's obvious it's obvious the criminals are questionable, but then there are some films where sometimes the criminals are doing things that may be questionable and could be deemed illegal, but aren't necessarily wrong and uh the, the the problem becomes for the cops you know how far do you go down the road before you start to think like these same supposed criminals that what they're doing isn't necessarily a bad thing uh you know what some of the some of the accomplishments that they're aiming for actually would be a positive thing and the, do you then become the person who kind of turns turns your eye away from the criminal element in this respect and then how long do you do that before you start turning your eye away from things that you shouldn't have been turning your eye away from? And that that really complex, nuanced view of how you have to look at crime and what you, you know, how you treat the criminal element, uh, those, those are where some really interesting ideas come about. But, you know, for a lot of movies, and this will, this will probably be one of them, basically, these are, these are action movies, man. Yeah, these are there. I mean, there's some, there's some ideas in there to chew on if you want to, but if you just want to see a bunch of uh, a bunch of action, this this is your flick because this is a series of set pieces where just crazy stuff happens. Oh my god, the pacing in this film is so awesome. Yes, from beginning to end, you're on this roller coaster ride. It flies by, man. It flies. You know, and speaking to your point that you just made, um, Lee Van Cleef's character in uh, Talby in Day of Anger, he, he's got these, you know, lessons that he's teaching Giuliano Gemma's character. And the 10th lesson was, once you start killing, you can't stop. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, evident here. But I did find, though, or I felt anyways, because they didn't really contradict it in the movie in, you know, Live Like a Cop, that these guys were inherently good. 
Yes, you know, yes. I, I really felt that they were they were good guys. They just used extreme, extreme measures. <laughs> right, right. They, they, they were good guys. And not just because they were cops, but because uh, although there are there are definitely means that they use that probably they could justify if they were forced to. But in this in the instance in which they're using these extreme measures, it's understandable to them and to you as the viewer as, you know, that's probably over the line, but I get it. Right. Yeah. And in, in looking back, like, for example, the, the scene at the end of the motorcycle chase, when, um, uh, uh, Fred, I'm sorry, Fred snaps the guy's neck, you know, when you first watch it, you're like, what the fuck? Why, why did he do that? But then when you look back at it, it's like, it, you could see probably in his mind that it was for the greater good. This guy's just going to go out and commit crimes again anyways. He's probably going to get off. You might as well just eliminate him now and solve the problem and the paperwork. And, well, yeah. oh, yeah, he, he fell and broke his neck. I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, and, and, and part of it, I wondered if, if some of it, uh, if you'd gotten him to vocalize it to someone that he completely trusted, it would be he's, he's, he's injured himself so badly here that, that uh, a smart lawyer is going to be able to get him out of jail in a short space of time because of the injuries exactly. that he caused himself. And I, right. yeah, I'm just not going to abide that. Yeah, yeah. And these guys are so funny, though, too, Fred and Tony, because at the very end, well, first of all, they don't even save the day. The boss saves them. <laughs> which, which I thought, first of all, what an interesting way to kind of pull the rug out from under you as a viewer because yeah. you're, you're, you're wondering if these two guys are going to survive. And, you know, honestly... They a lot. Most of what happens at the end could have happened just fine if they had been at home in bed. Right. <laughs> but then they turn around and they, when they realize that the the bomb is on the ship, they just blow it up for. Anyways, I thought they were going to drag the bodies, put them on the boat, and then blow it up. No, they just blew it up for shits and giggles. <laughs> also, because you know, at that point, and you know, not not, not to sound like I'm, I'm casting aspersions on their character, but it's you know, they're going to be the ones writing the writing the report anyway. They can write it up however they want to. Yeah, that's true. It was just such a great movie, and you know, the the one scene that we haven't talked about. Well, there's quite a few, but one of the ones, the the hostage scene, which yep. I didn't. Did they explain why the bad guys were holding that lady hostage? I didn't really catch that. No, no, no. That's another one of the. Uh, you know, we, we now join this crime already in progress. Oh, okay. That's All right. yeah. That we, we don't know exactly what was going on there, but then the, you know the way the scene plays out. And here's the thing. You know, once again, horrible but true. Uh, these kinds of events, like what being portrayed in that sequence, uh, were fairly. They were not unknown at the time. Uh, where you know criminals would be, uh, they would either uh, you know try to be uh, getting away from the cops or. Uh, escaping from a, a situation where they were afraid they were going to be seen or whatever, and uh, essentially kind of barricade themselves inside someone's house uh, until they felt safe and could come out and go away, or, horribly enough, end up in a situation where they're, you know, it, it's a home invasion, and, and now you've got the cops outside, and you've got no way out without having, you know, you know a human shield in front. So this right. was not an uncommon, not an uncommon situation at the time. It was not unknown. And from what I've from what I've read, there was a particularly famous uh, event of this type in Italy in the early seventies. That uh, as soon as you put a scene like this in a movie, an Italian audience is immediately going to know exactly what you're referencing. Oh, okay. And you you can see too, based on on that fact, that 
you know, the, the people of Italy were experiencing things like this, you could understand why the scene played out the way it did in this movie, because you got the commissioner who basically was just going to give them the car that they demanded and let them go. And, you know, I, I took that to be that in the mind of the people, the police are useless. And so you're rooting for these two guys. I mean, I remember watching it on, on the first time going, wondering, you know, what are they going to do? How are they going to get this lady out of this situation? And are they going to be able to do it without having her get killed? And they did it. And it was it was just awesome the way, you know, they, uh, I think it was Tony who was playing with the car. He pretended to be the car. And then he kept fucking up with the clutch yeah. on purpose just so Fred could sneak in the back way. Just to dra- just to drag the yeah just to drag the time yeah. out yeah that was amazing and that was definitely a statement on the ineffectiveness of the police and why almost almost a justification why a special force would have been needed at that time and, and it but it, at the same time it's very easy to see why the uh, why the other cops would get pissed off because dude you I mean it's just as it would have been just as easy for that poor lady to be killed right that's and, true uh, I mean they were they were putting her life in danger there's no way around that their actions could have ended up in her death. So. Right. It's like a game to them. The whole, the whole, like, life, everything they do is one big game to the, to Fred and Tony. Uh, yeah, and like I say, it's, it, the movie is not definitely telling you that's a good thing, and it's also not definitely telling you it's a bad thing. Right. <laughs> There's a great scene where you've got the armored car thieves, and, of course, the armored car is more like an armored Ninja Turtles van. <laughs> <laughs> I kept waiting for an actual armored car to show up. I'm like, oh, is that it? <laughs> it's 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 what you had in 1975 or 76. Right. <laughs> that's what, that was that's what it looked like. But then they, with silencers, Fred and Tony just basically dispatch all the the bad guys like nothing, and then they hop on the bike and drive by like spectators, looking at what's going on. <laughs> that's actually one of my favorite sequences of the movie because what it shows is uh, once again one of the one of the things we should be clear about is the only reason. Even starting with the opening scene, right after the opening credits, the only reason these guys are where they are to take care of these crimes as they are committed is they've got a mole inside this larger criminal organization who is telling them, hey, this particular act has been okayed from the bosses and it's going to happen at this place, you know, on this day. Right. So they're, they, can lie, they can really lie and wait for these criminals to move and then take them out. And then as the movie progresses, what we see them doing is deciding we're not going to wait. We're just going to kill them. We're just going yeah. to be done with it. And uh, there's a part of you who, when that starts to happen, and that's the scene you're talking about there, where they just put, they just strap silencers to their to their guns and spend some time there before it, before the crime is supposed to go down. They spot the people who are obviously going to be doing what they're going to be doing, and they just kill them. Uh, yeah. It's 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 a moment of. Uh, Let's just say that the movie is is good enough and it's well written enough and played enough that as an audience member, you are perfectly okay with this by that point in the movie. Right. <laughs> you you have you have been pulled onto their side. The the moral ambiguity uh is completely bypassing you in both lines of that lanes at that point because you we we are because we now know that's what what these people had planned and guess what? It's not gonna happen now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so good. I think it didn't Deodato. He played um, one of the guys coming out of the bank. Oh, I can't remember that. He, I, that would not shock me. Yeah, he, I guess he's cameoed in almost all of his films, sort of like Hitchcock. So I do absolutely. I, I do always love it when a director does that. When, uh, when you get that, <laughs> when you get that thing, there are uh, I, I, there are some directors where if they do it, it becomes uh, uh, 
it, it becomes distracting if you, if they're well known if their faces are well known enough. It's like, oh, right. oh look, oh, look, that's you know that's this person or that person. Uh, it, it is a lot of fun. What I kind of almost prefer, I hate to say this, because it's 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 a weird distinction to make. I almost love it when a director cameos in somebody else's movie more. Yeah, I think that's more fun. Like uh, there's this hysterical uh, Peter Jackson cameo in. Uh, uh, and someone I, now I can't remember someone else's film where uh, he's just he's just he looks like this bearded lunatic. <laughs> and, he, and he doesn't have a, he doesn't have a line of dialogue. He just kind of grunts, and I'm just like ah, now see there you go, there you go. That's just you being fun. Or the the moment in uh, Danny DeVito's movie Hoffa where he had Tim Burton play a corpse. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I, I, I love that. That's great. Or like like Simon Pegg and Nick Frost playing zombies in that are chained to the wall in Land of the Dead. Uh huh. Exactly. Those are the kind. Of, those are the kind. Of, I, I kind of prefer my my filmmaker cameos in other people's movies because then it's this it's this uh, it's kind of it's this kind of fun thing where it's a little it's it's like a little bonus inside yeah. built inside the movie for movie nights. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one thing I did like too about these characters is there were there were a lot of little just character touches throughout the film that I thought were great, just added to the dimension of the film. Which, like for example, Tony's always swiping a cigarette right out of somebody's mouth. He'll just walk <laughs> yeah. by and just grab the cigarette. <laughs> yep. Never see him, or hardly ever see him light one up on his own. Um, and then they ha- they always have this thing when they walk in to the to the secretary, they'll swipe the flower that's been delivered to the front that's sitting in the front, and they'll fight. Yeah. If one, you know, one's trying to get there before the other, so they can grab the flower and pretend that they brought it into her, <laughs> uh, and it never, and it never works. I think they, tw- I think they try it twice. Yeah, and each time she's like, "Why don't you go put that back out on the desk?" Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So um, I have to say, what a great movie. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to mention about this film that our audience should know? Well, uh, I. I, I always like to do this when I start talking about a, a, a genre that people may, may, you know, a genre of film that is kind of separated by time or distance in some way from uh, the kinds of things that a, a more modern audience, uh, a podcasting audience maybe, <laughs> might, might, <laughs> might be paying attention to. For instance, uh, what I would say about this is that if you're interested, uh, because you either heard us talking about this movie and it sounds intriguing, or you've just heard about these you know, these wild 70s crime movies from Europe, uh, I always like to try to point out what would be a good starting point. Now, this actually, this film actually would be a good starting point. This is a good example of the genre, if you've never encountered it before. This is a good one to start with. Uh, but there are a number of, we, we mentioned a lot of them along the way. Uh, my uh, my mistaking one act, my mistake of crediting one actor in Almost Human as another character. Uh, trust me, uh, Tom Osmilion is also capable of playing a sleazy, greasy scumbag. Wait, 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 just as well as anyone else, including uh, Henry Silva. Right. But, uh, if, if, if you're looking for a good example, this is one. Uh, once again, I, I'd point people to uh, movies like The Big Racket or uh, uh, the. Uh, uh, Revolver is another one. I think I've, I think I've already mentioned that one before. Uh, any of the Fernando Le- Fr- uh, Fernando De Leo uh, movies that he directed, any of the crime movies that he directed, most especially Caliber Nine, which I think yeah. is phenomenal. Syndicate Sadists uh, is a good one. It's a nice kind of not to beat this idea to death, but it's kind of a nice sleazy and grimy one. 
that's, well, that's one. Of the, that's one of the things that you'll 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 if you start watching a number of these, one of the things you'll notice really easily <laughs> is that uh, there are some that are uh, that, that could almost be considered the types of movies that Italy might export. It would be considered uh, would be considered the kind of movie that might even get nominations for awards. You know, wow. there, there really are. There are there are some movies of that type. Th- uh, things that almost fall into this category. Things like uh, you know, uh, suspicious death of a minor or uh, investigation of a citizen above suspicion, which kind of are part of this genre, but are a little more lofty in their goals. They're not as down and dirty and gritty. And then you have movies where like this, which kind of gritty they're kind of striding the line uh and then you get into movies like you know oh what's a good example uh Revol- revolver is almost a, a, a an art film at times revolver is a beautiful movie but when you start getting into you know violent maples or uh, uh violent professionals things like that you're starting to talk about movies that uh or like rico the mean machine which is you know which which has a, a an on screen castration of a character. I mean you're, just, you're right. starting to get you're starting to get into some nasty nasty stuff, and uh, it, it just it's it's a question of what you're willing to enjoy. Uh, you know if you if you want to see the harsher stuff, it's there. Uh, what 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 there really needs to be is like a long list of are are you just wanting to see an interesting police procedural made in the seventies in Italy? Here's a list. Yeah. Are you wanting exactly. to see something that's a little too violent? Maybe just maybe a little too violent. Here's a list. Are right. you wanting to see something that feels like that when you're done, you've been rolling around in a gutter and kind of putting filthy water into your into your eyes? Okay, here's a list for that as well. Uh, and so uh, the, the 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 joy of this little you know genre or subgenre is that there are a lot of different flavors in it, and uh, some of them are sweet, some of them are bitter, and some of them will make you uh, think that you might have to throw up. So, right, <laughs> or go that, take a shower. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's, oh, there's definitely something here where showering is, uh, is, is going to be on your mind. <laughs> yeah, you know, I love discovering new genres like this. Like, I, I was marginally aware that these kind of films were out there, but it wasn't until we really got into it today that I'm like, okay, there's a whole new genre now I got to to dive into <laughs> and enjoy. Well, uh, like I say, this this would be a good good jumping off point. Uh, uh, if you want to see a if you want to see a film that might uh, be more uh, a more natural step forward for an American audience at least, uh, let me recommend one of one of my absolute fam- favorites of this genre at all. It's called Violent City. I think I mentioned it earlier. Yep. Uh, yep. It's by uh, it's directed by Sergio Salima, who I think made a lot of really great films. And the reason it's probably an easier step into the genre uh, is it's not super violent. But it also, but it stars Charles Bronson and Telly Savalas. And, oh, okay. Uh, it was, uh, and it was even mostly shot in uh, New Orleans. It is an excellent example of this kind of movie. It is also, uh, in my opinion, one of the best crime films of the 1970s, uh, regardless of nation of interest. I mean, this is, <laughs> I don't care what country you start talking about, uh, I think Violent City, uh, fits perfectly well into this. Uh, its main character is uh, is an assassin, and you're, you're kind of wallowing in the, in the criminal element. Uh, it's it's a, it's a simply brilliant movie, and uh, in a lot of ways, uh, you might be upset that all the, all the films that you watch after that won't be quite as good, but it'll at least get you in the door. Right, 
Exactly. Awesome. You know, I wish there was a sequel to this film because I just wanted to play in this universe more. Oh, yeah. I, re <laughs> I really wanted to see more of these characters. And that's a testament, I think, to the directing and the acting and, and the writing. The it is Especially the writing. Once, once again, when you have somebody who's this good at writing crime stories, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really... It, it, well, first of all, the great thing is if people, if you see this movie, if you choose this one and you see it and you enjoy it, the good news is uh, the guy who wrote this wrote movies that are just as good as this and better within the same genre. You could feast on this man's work for a solid month nice. and have a great time the entire time. That's excellent. Rod, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show here. It's truly been an honor having you. Can you tell our listeners where they can find you online and, and maybe if you've got any projects coming up? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, different projects coming up. We've got a, uh, a couple of uh, my, my, my partner in crime, uh, Troy Glenn and I. Uh, we're continuing. Uh, we're, we're moving into our 11th year of the Nashi cast. Uh, we nice. Don't, we, don't, we don't churn out as many episodes as we used to, mainly because we've gone through most of uh, Paul Nashi's films, and now we're just inviting on other people to talk about uh, Paul Nashi because Lord knows we've done it enough. Uh, our first, uh, we're going to have uh, Sam Deegan join, joining us for a second time to talk about uh, a couple of uh, uh, Paul Nashi films that she's linking because uh, they have portrayals of the devil in them. Kind of get a, a, a little bit of a, a, a dig into exactly what kinds of uh, satanic portrayals Nashi found interesting. He was putting on the screen during his heyday. Nice. Uh, uh, Troy and I have, are continuing uh, over the, on the Bloody Pit podcast. With, he and I are continuing our ongoing series, working our way through all of the uh, universal horror films that were made in the 1940s, the ones that uh, often get short shrift because uh, you know lower budgets and uh, you know, stronger censorship and the idea that uh, a lot of these movies are produced for a younger audience, uh, which is which is true, but that doesn't make these films less interesting to talk about. So uh, we're, we're digging back into that. And uh, on the Nashi cast, actually, here in the near future, in the next couple of months, uh, one of the few Nashi films that we've not talked about before because it's a terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> we've, actually found a, we've actually found a very interesting way to uh, not, not kill ourselves talking about this particular movie. Uh, it's called Shadows of Blood, and it is a uh, shot on video film from the late 80s that nobody has anything good to say about it because there's nothing good to say about it. Uh, it's, it's a movie we've put off for, at this point, 11 years because wow. e every time we thought about doing it, uh, we just got depressed. <laughs> so, <laughs> but we've actually found a way. We're going to finally cover Shadows of Blood uh, later this year. So uh, if, you, if you're intrigued by just how in the hell we can finally find a way to not... Uh, not cry for an entire podcast <laughs> when discussing that movie. Uh, we, we have found it, folks. We have found it. That's uh, we, great. We do have a couple more commentary tracks that are slated to come out later this year. Uh, can't quite make public announcements about uh, about them as as such, but if you're attuned to what's coming out on Blu-ray from certain boutique labels here soon, uh, you, you probably figure out what commentary tracks we have in the hopper. Uh, and... Uh, Man, there's, I'm sure there are other projects, but I can't. If you want to, if you want, if you want to, the, the, the jumping off point for all of these things uh, is going to be my uh, my blog over there, uh, the Bloody Pit or the Bloody Pit of Rod. Uh, search for that; you'll find it pretty easily. 
and uh, you'll be able to find both podcast streams there. We are always up to something, and it's usually not uh, not anything that you want to stare too directly at for too long. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much once again for joining us, and hopefully we can have you back on the show in the future to talk about other fun films. Oh, I'd be glad to, man. Thank you very much. Okay, well, we hope you enjoyed today's episode of Then Is Now Podcast, and we encourage you to check out Rod's podcasts, The Nashy Cast, and The Bloody Pit, as well as his blog, The Bloody Pit of Rod, and his numerous Blu-ray film commentaries. Rod Barnett is truly one of the great podcasters of our time. As always, his various web links will be in the show notes. Remember, you can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook, Then Is Now Podcast group. Then Is Now Podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com, where you'll find our sister show, The East Meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media. For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.